This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. And now we turn to Aliza Luft from the University of California, Los Angeles. Aliza is an expert on culture, political sociology, and particularly genocide. And she wrote an awesome paper published in 2015 in Social Theory uh, titled Towards a Dynamic Theory of Genocide, Killing, Distance, and Saving in 1994 Rwanda. Uh, thank you for joining us, Aliza. Thank you. So t- can you, for those of us who haven't read this study, can you give us a rundown of the 2015 paper? We'll move on to your current work, but I'm a big fan of this paper. No, it's all good. I mean, my current work is very much informed by the ideas that are in that paper. Um, and I, so the, t- the title has the word desistance, not distance, but actually the more important point is that I hate the title because I think that a lot of people who um, might be interested in the ideas that are contained in it might not read it uh, because the title doesn't do a great job discussing what it's about, which is really about the relationship between social categories and political behaviors in violent settings. And so what I, let me tell like the story of how I actually ended up writing this paper actually is um, I was very interested in what motivated people to kill other people when they'd never done that before and nothing would lead you to believe that they would do that. So basically how do people kill neighbors in genocide when they aren't kind of these ideological hardliners or these extremists who are organizing the violence, but actually just local level civilians who have long lived with and side by side with their neighbors who they ended up killing. And Rwanda is sort of one of the classic examples of this. And so I went to Rwanda um, and I interviewed people who had participated in the genocide. And I intentionally used the word participated now instead of perpetrator. And one of the things I found is that they, they would tell me these stories about why they killed, when they killed, how they killed. But in between the stories would also be bits and pieces of moments when they didn't kill or um, saved somebody uh, or just refused to participate. And I start to think like, huh, you know, there's all this research on perpetrators in genocide, but we really don't understand why people who are actively participating in violence sometimes desist and refuse to participate or even save others. And why is that? And so I went back to a lot of the original research on what motivates participation in genocide. And I found that, in fact, even the evidence that research was relying on um, showed examples of people refusing to participate or desisting at other moments in time. But because they were so fixed on the idea of perpetrating violence, they ignored this variation. So that led me to develop what I call this dynamic theory of action. But what it really is, is trying to understand when social categories, in this case, Hutu and Tutsi, link up with the behaviors that you're expected to engage in, in a violent context, which is if you're Hutu killing, um, and when they don't. And, you know, this body of research that I love is is informed largely by my colleague Rogers Brubaker um, and the boundary literature, looking at sort of disentangling our ideas of groupness to try and understand when and how groups form, when and how they dissolve, um, what creates a social boundary. Um, Andreas Wimmer says social boundaries include both categories and behaviors, and when they link up together, that's when you have this social boundary thing, a group, um, and trying to understand essentially what 
what predicts that kind of alignment in a violent setting. Uh, so that's the theoretical outlay of the paper, if you will. Yeah, it was one of the, I, I, the, what I took from it, tell me if I'm off, but it's that when we think of genocide or maybe more broadly political violence or, or maybe even just sort of acrimonious politics towards a, uh, a group of any type, we tend to think of good guys and bad guys or maybe like either entire nations were evil like the Nazi Germans or the Hutus or maybe we might even parse it out as there were righteous Hutus and uh, murderous Hutus. But but your, your paper makes the point that uh, – there are people like they, they, they almost transition between moments of murderousness and, and moments of, of uh, you know, uh, wanting to save people. And it, a lot of it was uh, contingent on on the social context in which the potential perpetrator could find themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we think about genocide and other forms of political violence, we tend to think about it as ethnic hatred or religious hatred or racial hatred. Um, but in if you think about it, like I myself embody multiple social identities, right? I'm a woman. I am white. I'm Canadian, I'm Jewish, um, I'm an American immigrant uh, or an immigrant to the U.S., um, all these categories. And so the question becomes, well, which category becomes salient for politics when? It's not always automatic that I'm just going to affiliate with my womanness because there's a woman candidate, let's say, right? Or someone who's claiming to do things in the names of all women. Um, but I, there are moments where I might align with that identity for politics and moments where I might not. And if we think of genocide as group hatred, then we miss out on this process completely on when and how people align with the categories and people claiming to make political demands in the name of that category. So it really complicates us under, you know, these assumptions of genocide as intergroup hatred. And then the other thing is it highlights the social context. I also think it highlights the role of timing as particularly crucial. And that's a paper that I'm working on now, sort of trying to understand um, cognitive adaptation to violence, my last mechanism, and really parse it out in light of all these theories, uh, dual process theories of moral thinking and moral judgment. So... The other problem, I mean, I, I have another paper where I talk about genocide as a form of contentious politics is that there is this assumption in the literature that all people mobilize for the exact same reason and that timing doesn't affect who mobilizes when or why or how. Um, and also that there can't be tremendous variation in why people mobilize, how people mobilize, and when people leave a movement, um, my, why they might rejoin. So just really complicating those assumptions about pr- the presumed groupiness of genocide, you can say. Well, you know, so, you know, when in thinking and just thinking through the conversation thus far, it brings me back to a conversation that we were having totally. last <laughs> week, actually, um, mm-hmm. about scapegoating yeah. and, and, and things like that, right? And, you know, and I'm wondering, like, how much of that how much of like what goes on with genocide isn't actually about hate, Mm -hmm. but it's in some ways this, it is this sort of like group process through which, you know, one, you know, you can, you know, if you think about it, like thinking about Leviticus, it's like, you know, you got the goat and you cast the sins (laughs) 
of all of us onto the goat mm-hmm. and you send him out into the wilderness. And it, I think about, you know, Jackson's short story, The Lottery, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like every year we got to get the one person that we kill, mm-hmm. right? In order to, and, and that person is sacrificed for the good of the group, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how much of like what goes on, like, when there is a genocide, isn't so much about hate. I mean, there might be some people who are motivated by hate, mm-hmm. right? Um, but so much more of, a, of it is about like, okay, we are in many ways sort of declaring the boundaries of the group, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, and casting out those who aren't of the group. And my participating in this is me reaffirming to you that I'm down with you. Well, we I, are in can I just depend, together. like some of it struck me as people were forced into participating in politics of hate. Like they were almost coerced into genocide. Totally. I mean, so some people are coerced through financial pressure. Some people are coerced through violence. Some people are coerced because of group pressures. But the the important thing, um, Leslie, with regard to what you're saying is that, well, there's two important things. One is like, yeah, totally. There are group leaders who say, hey, man, like if you're going to be a good Hutu, if I'm going to like you know, trust you as a, as a person, as a Hutu, as, as another, as a fellow citizen, you have to participate in this because if you don't, then I'm going to think you're a traitor to our cause. And if you're a traitor to our cause, then you should die too. (laughs) Right. So there's like pressures to join the group, social pressures, or there's some really interesting research on like masculinity pressures. For example, a lot of women saying to their husbands in the Rwandan genocide, if you don't participate, you're not a good man. What kind of husband are you? What kind of father are you if you're not protecting our nation by going out and joining the fight? Um, so there are all these pressures that happen within group or with reference to group ideas and group ideology, which brings me to the second thing. And this comes out kind of strongly in the book that I'm working on, there's a very big difference between what people do and what people believe about what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. So people can participate in violence and fully know and believe and think and feel, like emotionally feel disgusted and horrified by what they're doing. But also people adapt over time. And that's where I think that um, the cognitive adaptation mechanism is really crucial. That has to do with emotion regulation um, and also with the larger culture that provides you with the narratives to justify to yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and, and that's sort of where the propaganda and ideology ends up playing a really big role. Because if you're going to explain to yourself, why did I kill my sister-in-law, which is a horrible thing to do. And the people I interviewed experienced severe trauma for doing those things. You have to eventually convince yourself, I did it for the good of the country or for the good of my people, you have to override um, your pre-existing primary social affiliations with new ones. And the in-group dynamics play a big role in reshaping that. And I have one more question about that. So the interesting thing about the Rwanda case is that I mean, going back to, I mean, we've been talking about social construction a lot in this episode, um, but like this whole like sort of like the, the constructing, the construction of these groups in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Um, and how they are really kind of like, they're kind of like these kind of imaginary physical differences, yeah. right? Between these two groups. And I'm wondering in cases where, um, 
sort of the lines that delineate that help to delineate who's a member of one group versus the other is kind of like murky and it's not really clear. Do you think that there might be even more pressure for one to actually participate in this kind of extreme behavior to ensure that you aren't mistaken from someone from that group? That's a really interesting question. I mean, Stathis Calabas writes about this a bit, and it comes up in my research and actually my husband's research as well, because we both do work on violence um, and met at a conference. Oh, wow. Very romantic. <laughs> we met at a conference yeah, where people would do work on genocide. So we were like, you're the one. <laughs> um, it's very funny. But, uh, you know, local collaboration is so necessary in these cases for that very reason, because it's so hard to identify who's who. Um, I mean, look, even in the Holocaust, there's, there were all these efforts to try and say, oh, this is what makes you Jewish. This is how you know someone's Jewish. But when Nazis would go into Western Ukraine, they didn't know who the Jewish villagers were and the non-Jewish ones. So local collaboration is so necessary for identifying who belongs to what category. Um, and that gives people opportunities to get access to let's say power or um, to eliminate some sort of local threat uh, or enact a personal grievance under the guise of a larger war. Um, so I think that, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I guess, I guess the answer is that there's both efforts by the state before most genocides to try and create clear boundaries around who belongs to what category. Even in Rwanda, they had identity cards where it would say whether you were Hutu or Tutsi, but there were also all these myths like Hutu have wider noses, Tutsi have longer fingers. Um, You know, they're racial myths, obviously, the same way that whiteness and blackness is a racial myth here in the U.S. But they couldn't actually be successfully carried out without the efforts of local collaborators. And so um, I think in any case, that's necessary. Uh, Do you think that there's, uh, when I read your study, I thought of what's happening here. Obviously, we're not on the path to genocide. But this idea of (laughs) pressures to conform and maybe one's uh, sensibilities about uh, good or respectable politics or behavior being dulled. Do you see any parallels between sort of the perception that institutions are breaking down here and what you what you've seen happen in uh, other institutions that fully break down yeah so i think what's happening here is much more similar to what my book project is on which is essentially the you know rise of authoritarianism in Vichy, France, where you had a democratic society beforehand. And I wrote about this in Scatterplot um, Mm -hmm. last November, I guess. Um, And I think like one thing that is very troubling to me, but that there's, yeah, I guess there's a couple of things is the, is the normalization of all this stuff. Right. In, in a sense, it's like, so many things are happening at such a quick pace that you get outraged and then you're outraged by the next thing and you're outraged by the next thing. And as you get outraged by each new thing, the other things fade into the background and just become part of politics as usual. And I was talking to some friends about this. I said, you know, what happens if 
Trump presidency proceeds, he loses the next election, we have another president, and that other president, there's a rumor he cheated on his wife with a porn star. Like, do we get to be outraged? Do we get to give a shit? Or are we just like, well, this isn't something that matters to us anymore. Moving on, you know? I'm supremely confident, like, for example, that a Senate will never confirm a Senate majority will never confirm the Supreme Court nominee of an opposing party. Like it'll have to be the president and the Senate will have to be of the same party to confirm nominees or that, no, anything that Trump does, it will be, uh, or anything, any future president who doesn't release tax returns or something like that. I think that their base will hold them blameless like Trump. Like these are normal things now. Maybe, or maybe like there's someone right now as we speak, like drafting an amendment <laughs> to the Constitution. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, yeah. I was just going to say, like, you know, precedent works like that, that there's uh, understandings of what's acceptable behavior, even if it's not a formal rule. And when somebody mm-hmm. violates that, it sets a precedent. And then that's just on the rule book. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about some pretty, uh, you know, uh, despicable things that, you know, go by kind of unnoticed and people, you know, it was like a half a day's news story that the president, you know, at the very least paid off a porn star. And I don't think anybody really doubts mm-hmm. that he slept with her. Um, yeah. But uh, although I, I heard somebody say uh, the best reason to believe he didn't sleep with her is that you'd expect him to pay her to talk, not to pay her not to talk. Uh, <laughs> but but um it's also so, this happened with other things, right? So um, the Obama administration made much greater use of executive action sure. once it became clear that um, there wasn't going to be any legis- anything legislative happening, uh, you know, after the first half of his first term. Um, but you can see other cases where there's been this like process of precedent, and then the system kind of breaks down because there's a decrease in trust. That's basically the story of the first century BC mm-hmm. in Rome, mm-hmm. where. <laughs> You know, you had people using the um, plebeian assembly, mm-hmm. uh, which previously had always kind of worked in concert with the Senate. But people started to realize, you know what? Actually, technically, the plebeian assembly doesn't need the Senate to go along with it. And technically, even though the plebeian assembly is not supposed to intervene in foreign policy or fiscal matters, there's no th- nothing written saying it can't. Or technically, you know, in theory, uh, military assignments are supposed to be given by lottery after you know, people win an election, but technically there's nothing against having the plea be an assembly to decide that. And somebody does it and it's a big deal when they do. And then after that, it's just routine mm. and people on the other side do it all the time. And, you know, it's very hard to undo a precedent. I think, I think that's why basically the collaboration of the GOP with all this insanity is infuriating to me personally. Um, and it's something that I highlight in the Scatterplot article is if you want to talk about normalization of things that we would have previously considered just totally impossible, you have to hold accountable the people who surround the person who should know better. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I think that people like Paul Ryan or people like Mitch McConnell are just totally complicit in what's happening and why I think it's so dangerous that they are. Because um, if they spoke out, if they defected, <laughs> this is what my book is about, but if they defected, um, that would change the course of events quite strongly. Well, look at Mike Pence, right? He won't even like have a drink with a woman who, alone, right? Who's not mm-hmm. his wife. And yet, you know, he just, you know, hangs out with the president who's paying off porn stars. I mean, I just don't get this. By the way, have you guys heard of that uh, How Democracies Die book that just came 
Levinsky yeah. and uh, Ziblatt, yeah. I guess their names are. I, I haven't read it, but I heard about it on uh, Ezra Klein. And uh, mm-hmm. the argument that I understood them to be uh, ex- uh, uh, extending is that Trump is like a symptom of, of a very long process where people pour, sort of put their short-term expediencies ahead of the principles that are underlying the letters of the law. So, for example, uh, because a tax return is a convention and not legally mandated, it was, you know, anybody could have stopped doing it. It was done in a, as a sense of civic duty and maintaining sort of the system. But when somebody stops doing that or they release a memo smearing the FBI or just the strange things that erode our democracy, it's like a, a, a series of, you know, sort of what seemed like short-term pragmatic moves that are probably taken by both sides. And what ends up happening is it becomes a knife fight where everybody feels like they have to do everything it takes to uh, win. And you end up getting the institutions, sort of the, the spirit of the institutions start being ignored and, and, and become decrepit in the process. Yeah, well, look at what happened to Macbeth. I mean, you know, it was like pretty expedient <laughs> to just go out there and kill home, dude. Right. You know, but I mean, I, I mean, these are, I think, age old. These are these are age old stories. And I think age old lessons. Right. That for whatever mm-hmm. reason, many societies and many individuals like still. Right. Like haven't learned from. Right. Or we're quick to point the finger and look at other look at other societies, look at other nations, right, in nation states who are, are going through these problems and cite those poor, those poor fools, right? And uh, here we're going through it ourselves, Well, right? yeah, I, I just want to add two things. Number one, you know, you're talking about complicity and everything like that. But to a remarkable extent, um, it's amazing how if you just ignore the tweets and all that sort of thing, how normal everything is. You know, a, mm-hmm. a lot of the policy that's actually gotten through is normal and, there, you know, one of the stories is that the checks and balances actually work to a surprising extent. So, you, you know, you can talk about like how, you know, traditionally this would have been a scandal and, you know, people were winking at it and that's all true, but it's also true that the outrageous policy proposals have largely been stopped uh, either because the Senate or the Congress isn't particularly interested in pushing them um, or because the courts step in or, even because people in his own administration uh, step in. So like this idea of firing Mueller, um, it was mm-hmm. Trump's own lawyers who threatened to resign. So there is does seem to be kind of a system works kind of thing. And number two, um, I'm not a fan of the guy, um, but I, I think there's, he's not Hitler. He's more like Berlusconi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and totally. I yeah. would love to be able to say, oh, those Italians, you know, I, I don't like being able to say, oh, it's just, that's exactly what's happening here. But, you know, he's not Hitler. Mm-hmm. He's not even Hugo Chavez. He's just, you know, he, he's a buffoon um, and a creep who has some very bad instincts, but those instincts have largely been held in check um, by the, now the pessimistic way to say is it's just the institutional inertia of the system and eventually we'll want, we'll run out of institutional inertia, you know, mm-hmm. but the optimistic way to say is we have is a good system of checks and balances that'll last a long time. Just a point of clarification, though, yeah. Gabriel, is it wasn't it wasn't Trump's lawyer. It was the lawyer for the presidency. Those are two very different. Well, things, that's a good point. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, if his if his personal lawyer looks anything like his personal doctor, I think he would have told him. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I also just want to clarify, by making an analogy with France, I'm not making an analogy with Hitler and the Holocaust, but with sure. what happens when you have a largely democratic um, regime with institutions suddenly replaced by a quasi-authoritarian one. How do people respond um, mm-hmm. and get used to these massive shifts, at least in what leaders want to do, even though... Um, Absolutely, like France's ability to carry out um, mass arrests of Jews and then deportations of Jews, I don't think would have been possible without the invasion of France by Germany. But I do think the macro level political dynamics of a sudden authoritarian regime with a population that's upset and confused, um, though there is that subset of the population that also strongly supports the new authoritarian leader is is a comparable model with my kind of work. But like, Gabe, what about things, I understand there are policies that haven't made it through, but there are some very institutionally damaging things that have happened, like institutions have been pulled into partisan politics where they weren't. Like I'm thinking, for example, of the uh, FBI, or uh, to some degree, the Supreme Court, which I realize... Well, the Demo- let's, not, let's not be... Uh- let's not be overly rosy about our memories of the FBI, yeah. right? The, the FBI has had a pretty good run for the last 20, 30 years, but you go back to the uh, Hoover era and, mm-hmm. you know, it was pretty openly partisan. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of all this stuff. Right. Um, you know, I'm just saying that to a large extent, the system is, you know, working in checks and balances and all that sort of thing. been listening to the annex a sociology podcast for more information visit the music is by lena orsa our production team included anika chowdhury and Lisseth moreno on behalf of the annex team i'm joe cohen thanks for listening